Thanks, guys. Well, you're not going to believe this. This morning, we're entering into the final chapter in the book of Romans. No, no, you're supposed no more. Uh, actually, I actually went back in my archives today to try to figure out when we started this expository series. And the introductory message was on January 8, 2017. So if my math is correct, that means we've spent uh, about two years, a little over two years and nine months in this amazing letter, with some breaks here and there, but it's been a nice, long marathon, uh, but hopefully a fruitful study. I know it's been an incredible blessing uh, to me to be able to teach it. You know the old saying that it's the teacher who learns the most, and you know that if you're a teacher, you know that when you have to prepare something, you learn more than even your audience, and so it has taught me, God has taught me so much through this book. So I feel blessed by it, and I hope you've been as well. We're going to finish it next week, and then at some point next month, we'll do a recap so that we can sort of go back over uh, the book as a whole, but next Sunday, we actually finish in chapter 16. In today's passage, we get to uh, witness something really practical and really instructive for us. We're going to read Paul's personal comments directed at a long list of friends and acquaintances and ministry partners all of whom lived and worshipped amongst this body of believers in the great city of Rome around the year 57 AD. And as we look at the names on this list in this chapter, we're going to try to remember that these are very real people. I mean, sometimes it's hard to remember that. These lists that we, in script, we see in Scripture, very real people, like you and I. Folks who just happen to be born at a, a different stage of world history, but by God's sovereign grace, came to salvation during this transitional time when the church was first expanding into the Mediterranean world, when the, the New Testament canon was still being written, and when it was still very risky to proclaim publicly that you were a follower of Christ. So the conditions in first century Rome are very different than the conditions of 21st century Santa Clarita, but make no mistake, the people that Paul knew and loved and acknowledged in Romans 16 were just as human as you and I. They had families, they had jobs, they had struggles, they had hopes and dreams for the future. Everything that we feel and experience today as we walk with Jesus, these people felt and experienced in their day. So whenever we get really historical, we go back and look at something like this, I, I like to say it's time for us to slip on some first century sandals, okay, to try to put yourself in the story, what would it have been like to be part of the church in the first century in Rome, and to try to look at life through the eyes of Paul and through his friends in the city of Rome. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have them open, go to Romans 16. We're going to cover 16 verses this morning, this long list of names. If you were with us last Sunday, what we talked about was what Paul believed about the power of prayer, especially as he was contemplating going from Corinth, where he wrote this letter, back to Jerusalem to deliver a financial gift to the poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And so he knew what he was in for, so the power of prayer was fresh in his mind. Well, today we get to listen and learn about what he believed about relationships in the local church. And that's, of course, important for all of us. Now, as we do that, one of the things that we have to tackle today, and I wish with all of my heart we didn't have to do this, but we do, is to clarify what Paul believed and taught about the role of women in church ministry. 
as you scan that list, look down at your text, you scan that list of some strange Greek names in verses 1 through 16, it might be hard to believe that a simple list of names like this has created so much controversy in the modern-day church, but it has. There's some real controversy in there, and we're going to have to deal with it today because I don't want to skip over it. We talked about when we started Romans, we're not going to skip over hard passages. We're going to deal with them up front, and there's a lot of things being written on this subject and about two names in this list in particular. So we're going to deal with them up front, two names among 27 people that Paul mentions in this chapter. So here's the plan this morning. We're going to first deal with some errant teaching that comes around about these two names. Um, And the issue at hand is what we call ecclesiology. Some of you know what that word means, big word, which refers to the doctrine of the church. What do we believe about how the church is to be organized and led? That's the issue at hand. And then we'll come back to really what I think is Paul's big idea, and that is to look closely at who these people are and how do they impact the gospel in Rome in the first century. That's really the exciting part of the passage, but we got to deal with this other thing first. So you with me? Okay, so let's talk about the two controversial names in question. You're going to find them in verse 1 and in verse 7. Both names of women, Phoebe and Junia. Let's look first at at verse 1, and we'll read about Phoebe. So in concluding his letter, so we've he sort of closed the door on most of his comments, and now he's, Paul's going to conclude his letter by, by writing to all these friends and acquaintances, and he says this, I commend to you our sister, and in Greek, by the way, it's phoebe, uh, but I'll go ahead and use the, the name Phoebe. The problem is the, the show Friends, right? Just sort of ruined the name Phoebe for so many of us, right? I mean, if you're a fan of Friends, you know what I'm talking about. It's still hard every time I read this not to think of that show, Uh, But I'll go ahead and use Phoebe because that's what we're sort of used to. But it's phoebe in the Greek, and the name means bright or or radiant. Um, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancrea, that you receive or welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So what's the controversy here? Well, it's that word servant that you see in the verse here. In the Greek, diakonos, right? It's the word that we translate in English, deacon. And the question is, does that mean that Phoebe is an office holder in the first century church? And if so, what does that say about how the church today should be organized and who should be put in leadership positions? So we'll come back to Phoebe in just a moment. Drop down now to verse 7. Let's look at the second one. Verse 7, greet Andronikos, and the NAS says Unias. Other translations say Unia or Junia. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, the controversy there should be maybe a a little bit more obvious than, than Phoebe. Notice the phrase, outstanding among the apostles. Is Paul referring to this woman, Junia, as an apostle? And again, if so, what does that say about how today we ought to be organizing leadership in the church? So we're going to try to tackle both of these references and make sure that we're consistent with other statements that we see throughout the New Testament. The first thing you need to know about 
both of these situations is the whole controversy surrounding these two ladies is a relatively new phenomenon. This was something that was not questioned through most of church history, and that probably doesn't surprise you. We are living in a very extreme time these days. Anybody notice that, by the way? Uh, Everything, and I mean everything today, is filtered through a grid of race and gender. Isn't that true? And so for many people in the church today, folks that we call Christian egalitarians, and that's a word that comes from the Latin word for equality, for an egalitarian, Phoebe and Junia have become the focal point of an agenda to thoroughly revise our ecclesiology by elevating women to all positions within church leadership. In fact, in their eyes, these two ladies, Phoebe and Junia, are sort of modern-day Joan of Arcs who've been placed in the biblical text in order to overturn the patriarchy, they say, that has dominated Christianity for more than 2,000 years. And so everything now here in 2019 is, is up in the air. Everything has to be re-looked at in order to satisfy the thirst for progressive ideas and what I call culture chasing, using the language and the ideas of the unsaved culture around us and adapting those to the biblical text and just chasing after the, you know, the fear of man, chasing after popularity in the world. There's a lot of that going on in the church today. So here's what I'll say about this right out of the gate in response. And this is sort of to balance us out because the one thing we don't want to do as we look at these issues is grow angry or militant. I know I've said this a million times. Our job is not to judge the world. That's God's job. Our judge is not to be militant and shake our fist at the world. We don't hold unsaved people to the standards of Scripture. That is our harvest field. So we got to be careful in the way we respond to these things. As a people who love God's Word, we shouldn't be threatened by anybody who asks good questions about the biblical text. Make sense? Even people who suggest alternative interpretations. Those are, those are fodder for good conversations about the text itself. As long as, and this is the important condition... As long as we enter into a good faith discussion where everybody is seeking unity and truth, that's really the, the condition. As we come to reason about the interpretation of the text, are we searching for unity and are we truly looking for the biblical truth or are we looking to build a narrative around what we want the text to say? And that's a really important condition. And there are scholarly egalitarians out there that are trying to do that. And it's good to read their materials. Again, we're not threatened by... Uh, alternative interpretations, but unfortunately, there are many in the egalitarian camp today who are not seeking unity, and they're not seeking truth. They're out there twisting and adapting the biblical text to fit their agenda, and that agenda is to claim that there is no distinction, no distinction at all between men and women when it comes to ministry in the local church. That is the ultimate goal. Now, I can't, I can't handle this topic Uh, in full like I'd like to in one sermon. In fact, if I was going to really do this well, it'd probably be a a series of three or four sermons or maybe even more. The point today is to stay focused on what Paul says in Romans 16. So let me just say this really quickly. This is not going to be an exhaustive discussion of this topic, but I want to throw it out to anybody here who is struggling with this. Maybe you come from an egalitarian family or church and you have questions about this. Again, We're not threatened by this, and these are good conversations. So if you want to talk more about this subject after today, please reach out. We can talk by email. You all know I love a good cup of coffee, and and we can talk over coffee as well. Would be happy to do that. So here's one of the many problems that egalitarians have with Paul. 
they love what he writes here about Phoebe and about Junia, and they celebrate it, but for the most part, they still believe that Paul was a misogynist. And that language is used regularly. A man who obviously felt that men should dominate women in marriage and should relegate women to second-class status within the church. Those are phrases you hear a lot in their materials. And so you can imagine how they feel when they read in Ephesians 5 about marriage, where it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Or what he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. Or what he writes in 1 Timothy 2, and I'm going to put this one on the screen because it's so critical to the argument. 1 Timothy 2, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And so you read these passages, and that's just a quick sample, there's others. You read these passages concerning this principle that we call male headship, both in the home and in the church, and then you try to make the case that Phoebe is a, is a leader in the church or that Junia is an apostle, and you can see how you can end up quite confused, right? Again, I don't have time to flesh this out completely, but when Paul describes the husband's leadership role and how male elders of the church are to function, is he instructing men to dominate women? Thank you. Whew. Man, scared me there for a second. Of course not. But words like dominate are often thrown into the discussion because they're pejoratives that, that egalitarians like to use to try to make their, build their narrative and to make their case. Of course not. They want to put a dark spin on the meaning of Paul's writings. Is Paul calling men to lord their power over their wives at home and over their sisters in the church? To lord their power over them? Of course not. Quite the opposite. Who is the model for men as leaders? Christ himself. The instruction to husbands and elders is to take as their model Christ himself, who, by the way, possessed all power and all authority, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant to love and to lead those who were under his headship. So, man, if you were confused about this, that is your calling. As a husband, if you become an elder in the church, is to model what, or is to fulfill the model that Christ has given you even to the point of laying down your life for those who are under your headship. That's the type of love and leadership that the biblical text calls us to. And to wives and to the women of the church, Paul says this, there is an, a, a very important distinction between the value of a woman, which is absolutely equal to a man, and the functional role she's called to play in marriage and in the church. It's the very opposite of egalitarianism. It's what we call complementarianism. How many of you guys have heard that phrase before? Okay, good. It simply means that God has made us uniquely male and female, equal in every way, yet created to play distinct roles that complement each other, like a hand and a glove. Complementary roles. And Paul grounds his teaching in the passage you see on the screen in 1 Timothy 2, which describes God's divine order that goes all the way back to Genesis 2. So this is not... This is not a teaching rooted in Corinth in the first century. It's rooted in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. That Adam was made first and then Eve. And so for better or worse, no matter what we think of this teaching, no matter how much we want to shake our fist at God and say, I don't understand why you did it this way, this is the way he did it. And it's difficult. Sometimes we have to just get to that place where we say, okay, this is hard. I'm not sure I understand every nuance of it. 
but I'll accept it because it's from the hand of, sovereign, of the sovereign God, right? This is how he established it. At the core of it all is that phrase you see on the screen, exercise authority. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And that is a key. In every relationship and in every organization, there's to be clarity and order and purpose. And what that means is that somebody has to take the position of authority. This is why you don't see corporations that have multiple CEOs, do you? There's somebody who's in a position of authority. It's why in the military, you don't have competing generals all barking out orders at the same time, trying to rule, because that leads to chaos. God's design is actually quite simple. He says, look, gentlemen, I've given you this place of authority to lead, but do it carefully. Do it with gentleness and respect and use Jesus as your example. And ladies, I know this isn't going to be easy, but follow your husband's lead. Follow the elders in your local church. And if you do so, if you obey that command, it will be better off for you. It will benefit you. And you know what? If men do this, if men lead carefully, if they lead as Christ leads, and if women obey and they follow with a happy heart, guess what? It's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most beautiful picture. Why? Because that's the way God designed it. It's the way God wired us. What happens is when either party or both parties refuse to accept that and live it out, right? It's beautiful because that's how God designed us as our creator. Now, the objection is often raised. Okay, Jeff, but what about women who are gifted in leadership? What are they supposed to do? What if they're gifted teachers? Are you saying no to the Holy Spirit then? And my answer is absolutely not. If you're gifted as a woman to teach and lead, by all means, go and teach and lead. But in that process, be mindful of the warning that Paul gives us. Do not exercise authority over men. Well, then how does that work? Well, there are plenty of opportunities in the home, plenty of opportunities in the church for women to teach and lead other women and to teach and lead children who are our most precious resource, right? What a huge high calling it is to teach children. In fact, women in our church, Tanya, Carol, Jesse, Meredith, and many other ladies here at Oak Hill are constantly using the gifts that God has given them to lead and to teach and to counsel, and they do it all the time. But all of them are doing it within the boundaries that are given to us in Scripture. So there's a balance that we can find here. That makes sense? So the reality is this. There's just one prohibition given to women in church ministry. One. You will not find women here serving as pastors or elders, and you won't find them teaching, discipling, or counseling men. You will, however, find them serving in every allowable context, because we as an elder team want nothing more than the ladies of Oak Hill to flourish in all the skills and the gifts that God has given you. That is our heart's desire. And if you think about it, to me, God's design for us in this ordering of things is very, very wise and very, very reasonable. But... For some in the church today, that is simply not good enough. It's not good enough. Some folks are not content with the boundaries that are given to us in Scripture. And so what they've done is they've decided, we're going we're gonna to pursue uh, progressive trends in the culture and go after those things rather than rely upon the eternal Word of God. And so if there's just one prohibition, just one in their minds, that thing has to be overcome in the name of tearing down the patriarchy. And it's sad. We see professing evangelical churches these days turning their back on the plain meaning of Scripture on this subject in order to win the approval of the world. It's sad. 
It's happening more often than you think. Maybe not in, a, in our church or in a church in this area, but it's happening quite frequently right now. So I want you to know that the elder team here at Oak Hill, we are committed to holding our ground on important subjects of gender and marriage and sexuality in spite of what we know is coming down the road. More and more pressure from the world to compromise. It's coming, folks. If you didn't see, the DNC uh, did, a, did a town hall just recently, and for the first time publicly, I heard a Democratic nominee talk about pulling the tax-exempt status from churches if they will not heal on the issue of same-sex marriage. So that was floated for the first time in 2019. My prediction is within a couple of years that will be standard practice in politics in Washington, D.C. So we know these things are coming. So it, the time to decide on what Scripture says and what we're going to hold our ground on is now because that stuff is coming down the road. And we will stand our ground. And as I said, we'll do it for the glory of God and with a smile on our face and with joy in our hearts, right? As we just say, you know what? Uh, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to stand on the eternal word of God. Amen? Now, one more passage I got to point to, and then I promise we're going to get back to Romans 16. This passage is every egalitarian's favorite verse. It's Galatians 3.28. You probably know it. Here's how it goes. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the argument goes, see? See? Proof texting, right? Male and female are irrelevant in Christ's church. Now, was this verse written by Paul? Same Paul, right, who wrote those other verses. So that's, again, something we've got to try to square together. So if the egalitarian interpretation of this verse is correct, that gender is irrelevant in the church, how do we square that with other passages like the passage you read from 1 Timothy 2? Here's the thing. What's the most important thing about interpreting a passage? Con you guys are so well-trained. <laughs> context. The context of Galatians 3 is not about office holding in the church. It's not about teaching authority. It's not about uh, uh, authority in the local church. The discussion here is about salvation, period. The, the, the transition from the law to salvation by faith alone. In fact, the previous two verses say this. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, in Christ, by faith, we are all one because we all have the same Father. Regardless of whether our gender or our ethnicity or our economic status, we all have one Father. See, some things never change about humankind. And in the first century, Paul understood that men love to divide by three basic things, by race, by rank and by gender. Still happening today. That was common practice in the pagan world in Paul's day. So he addresses these walls of division here in this, in this verse, saying this is, what, this is what the world divides upon, but it's not to be so in the church among God's redeemed people. So when it comes to salvation, there are no differences among us. It's been said this, we are all absolutely equal at the foot of the cross. That's what this verse is about. But and this is an important but, does that mean that the distinctive ways that God has made us suddenly disappear because we receive Christ? No. I mean, did anybody here cease to be black or white or brown because you accepted Christ? Of course not. Did Paul cease to be a Jew 
ethnically when he received Christ? No. Do you cease to be male or female just because you've come into the faith? Of course not. This is a really important statement. The church is not a colorless, androgynous place. When it comes to our physical and social identities, we continue to be what God has made us, the great designer. Only now, with all of our differences, we can come together in Christ as one because we have one Father. And in that oneness, rather than letting these things divide us as the world divides, now we can celebrate what makes each one of us unique in Christ. So we're all equal in God's eyes, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, but our specific gender roles are upheld as a part of God's perfect design for both the family and for the household of God, his church. Does that make sense? Very, very important. Okay, so with all that said, let's go back now to Phoebe in verse 1. Hopefully that's some good background to help us sort out both Phoebe and Junia. Verse 1, let's see if we can identify what her role was in the church. First of all, we see that she was from a particular city, Sancria, which was a port city just to the east of Corinth, right there on the coastline. So she was in the, as Paul was writing the letter to the Romans, she was in the town right next door at the port. Okay, that's number one. Secondly, it's very likely that Phoebe was a woman of means, very possibly a wealthy businesswoman, perhaps a widow. Okay, something like Lydia in Philippi that we read about in Acts 16. But what intrigues historians is the word that Paul uses to describe her at the end of verse 2. Take a look at it. This is the only time we see this word in the entire New Testament. Phoebe is called prostates. You see it there? It's the word helper in the New American Standard, but I don't think that's the best translation. I, don't, I think there's more to it than that. The ESV uses the word patron. What does a patron do? A patron usually puts up financial resources to help somebody else. Okay, I think the CSB uses the word benefactor, similar word. So Phoebe appears to be a woman who has means, and she's using her financial resources, has in the past to help Paul and many others in the early church. Now, what makes Phoebe unique among the list of 27 names in this chapter is she's the only one not living in Rome. Everybody else Paul writes to is living in Rome as part of the church in Rome, but not Phoebe. She's traveling to Rome from where? From her home in Sancria. Okay, she's a servant in that church. So what Paul's doing here in verse 1 is she's asking the church in Rome to welcome her. So Phoebe is taking a trip to Rome. And Paul says, welcome this girl, welcome this woman, and see how he commends her in verse 1. Commends her to the church in Rome. Basically says, look, this is a woman who is a valuable part of my ministry team. She's been a blessing to many of us, therefore be a blessing to her when she arrives. Okay, so he's writing, this is sort of like an ancient care team, right? He's saying, hey, take care of this woman. By the way, was it easy to travel back in the first century? No, and especially not for a woman. In fact, some scholars believe that she might have even had servants. If she was a woman of means, she might have brought servants with her because a woman traveling that far on a boat in the first century would have been very, very dangerous, so receive her in a manner worthy of the saints, Paul writes. She's my sister, and she's your sister in Christ. So see to it that all of her needs are met when she gets there. Does she need housing? Does she need food? What needs does she have? Take care of this dear sister. That's the way the global church worked back in the day. And by the way, it's still the way the church is supposed to work. Traveling missionaries, people come into town, 
brothers and sisters in Christ. We welcome them, we treat them as family, right? That's the way things worked back in the day. Now, this raises the question, why is Phoebe going to Rome? And why is Paul commending her to the church there? Well, the most logical answer is she's the one carrying the letter to the Romans. Now, I want you to imagine this for a second. We all know how powerful this, this book is, right? And how it's literally changed untold numbers of lives. Can you imagine being the person that gets the original book of Romans handed to you in a scroll? A woman, Paul trusts with this, right? And says, hey, this is an important letter. This is a long journey, but I trust you. Phoebe must have been a very competent woman and a very trustworthy servant for her to carry such a letter. I just, that gives me goosebumps to even think about having your hands on the original book of Romans. But it looks like this is the woman who did it. Now, let's deal with the controversy, which, by the way, really isn't controversial, but we'll deal with it anyway. The question is this. When Paul calls her a diakonos, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, the word can indicate an office holder in the church, officially a deacon, but it can also mean just a general servant. 29 times this word diakonos is found in the New Testament. 25 times it's speaking of just a general servant. Four times it refers to the official office of a deacon. Now it could be either one here, but the question is, does it even matter? And the answer is no. I don't think it does. You know why? Because there's no reason under the sun that a woman can't serve as a deacon. Because it doesn't violate anything that Paul says about authority over men in the church. A deacon is a high servant role. So this is not really even a controversy, even though some people have made it out to be. It doesn't carry a role of teaching men. It doesn't carry a role of authority over men. The focus is the works of service within the body. Now, I know some of you guys, you grew up in churches, and you're like, oh, man, this, this doesn't feel right. It could be that the church you grew up in didn't define deacons well. And maybe deacons and elders got sort of blended into one thing. But the scripture is very clear in the New Testament. There are deacons with authority, and then there are high servants. We are, sorry, elders, elders with teaching authority. And there are deacons that are high servants. And so we got to make sure we understand that distinction. So we currently have here at Oak Hill three Phoebes. I don't know if you knew that, but we do. We have three Phoebes, three deaconesses. And each one of them plays a very important high service role in our church. My wife, Tanya, is our church administrator. Yes. She holds no authority in the church in terms of teaching or authority over men whatsoever. She's an administrator. Carol is the leader of our women's ministry. She's a deaconess. And and Jesse, as our primary counselor of women in the church, is also a deaconess. So so we're, we're, we're balancing these two principles that... There is no problem with having a deaconess in the church, but we're striving to make sure that we're very careful about the prohibitions that Paul gives us in the text. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So that one, Phoebe, really shouldn't be a big deal. And again, if, you wanted, if you've got a background in this and you're like, oh man, I don't like this idea of, of deaconesses, let's talk about it. We can go to 1 Timothy 3. would love to chat about verses 8 to 13 that I think gives approval for deaconesses in the church. Study it well, and we'll get together over coffee, and we'll talk about it. Deal? Okay, the harder one is Junia. Let's go to verse 7. There it is. 
By the way, his poor... Andronicus gets lost in this whole discussion. Poor guy. By the way, his name is great. In Greek, it means man of victory. Nike, right? Man of victory. And now the New American Standard says unios, with an S on the end. Other translations say unia, and there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that in a second. They're my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, Paul says, who also were in Christ before me. So among egalitarians today, again, Junia is the preeminent heroine that all entire libraries of books are being written about her right now. Because there are so many people who really, they got to tear down the patriarchy, man. They got to, there's this one thing and they can't do it. And they, they're going to fight tooth and nail until they bring it down. Entire feminist organizations have co-opted the name of Junia. And that's the Junia this and the Junia that. And, and so she's a, a real heroine today. I, I think if she could walk in the door, she'd be ashamed. Before we get to the controversy, let's look at what we can know about her and this man. Andronicus. Four things. First of all, because they're paired together, they're probably husband and wife, as are others within this list. Secondly, they were apparently Jews, okay, because Paul says, my kinsmen. Okay, so we've talked about the Roman church was made up primarily of Gentiles, but also Jews. Third, at some point, like Paul, they've been put in prison for the gospel. Okay, so they're warriors for the cause, male and female, warriors for the gospel in the first century. We don't know if they were in prison with Paul at some time or thrown into prison at some different time, but there's no question that they are warriors for the cause and they've suffered for the gospel. Fourth, it's a really fascinating detail to see that they were believers before Paul. Now, remember, Paul gets knocked off his horse on the road to the Damascus Road. So by that point, these two had already been followers of Christ very early in the history of the church. And I think that's an important thing to understand as we look to properly interpret this passage. So part of the controversy surrounding Unia actually comes from an old conspiracy theory. Do we love conspiracy theories today? My goodness. I mean, go on Twitter. It'll change your life. Here's the thing. The early church, with one notable exception, always taught that Unia was a woman. And then in the medieval period, that patriarchy rose up and they put an S on the end of it. You know, they just snuck that into the text and they made him a man. And so the conspiracy theorists, all the feminists say, see, that's what the patriarchy does, right? It's sort of the Dan Brown version, Da Vinci Code diversion, uh, version of conspiracy. The church is hiding this. This woman was an apostle and the, the church has gone out of its way to, to scratch her from the record. So there's this big... Con- and the thing about conspiracy theories, when we seem to think we've been caught up in one, it just justifies us uh, even more in our beliefs, right? Hardens us in our in our beliefs, and that's what's gone on here. Well, today that record's been corrected. Scholars have actually, because now we have access to computers, we can do massive data searches on all kinds of names from this period of time, Greek names. And in all the searches for this, almost every search for Unia or Unias comes up as a female. So there's almost no scholars today that would deny that this is a woman. So that conspiracy's been done away with. So if, you, if that comes up, just say, we don't have to get into that. I'll stipulate this is a woman. And then I'll stipulate that this is a husband-wife team. And that makes the most sense, okay? So the rest of the controversy then is really around this phrase, outstanding among the apostles. Does that mean that Unia was an apostle? Because if she was, she's instantly imbued with power and authority over men. 
True? So now you can see why those in the feminist movement within the church badly want to see her labeled as an apostle. Well, there's two mitigating factors to that interpretive conclusion. First of all, there's no consensus on the correct translation of that phrase, outstanding among the apostles. It's, pretty, it's a pretty technical thing, and again, books have been written about this, but it's just as likely that the correct translation is, as the ESV renders it, well known to the apostles. That this husband-wife team were not apostles themselves, they were well known to the apostles. The CSB says they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle. And that, that actually fits the context better. If Andronikos and Unia were both saved right after the resurrection, okay, before Paul was saved, early on, if they were saved right away, don't you think guys like Peter and John would have known them well? Of course. They would have been well known to all of those guys because they were some of the earliest workers of the gospel. They would have been well known and well regarded by the apostles. So the language doesn't insist that the couple were apostles, only that they were known to the apostles and they were significant in the eyes of the apostles. Does that make sense? The second mitigating factor is this. Egalitarians presuppose what the term apostle means in this text. Remember that like the word diakonos, there are multiple ways to interpret the word apostle. Yes, it can refer to an official title, an office in the church like the one that Paul held, but the most literal, the meaning of the word apostle is what? It's messenger or delegate or ambassador. That's what it could be referring to. So by calling them apostles here, if that's what Paul is doing, it's likely he's just referring to this couple as one of the earliest missionary teams that was out there preaching the gospel and therefore would have been well known to the apostles. So all that to say, unless we're willing to concede that Paul taught one thing about the role of women in the church, but then in his own team practiced something else, the most logical conclusion is, is that. This isn't that mysterious. This was an amazing couple, male and female, who did amazing gospel work as missionaries in the early church and were well-known and well-regarded by the apostles. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Whew. Having said all that, and that's a lot, okay, now what we're going to do is take a look at the team. We're going to go through, I'm going to do this briefly, I promise, because I know I'm running out of time. But let's run through this team. All these people that are a part of Paul's network of gospel workers and see if we can figure out who they are. Let's start in verse 3. And by the way, in verse 3, we get to the, the Bible's most prominent power couple. I mean, you know the power, you know those power couples where they're, they're super skilled and super energetic and constantly working for the gospel? These two are amazing. Look at verse 3. Uh, greet Prisca, which is, of course, the shortened version of Priscilla. And now we say what? A, a, Aquila? Is that what we say? It's Aquilos in the Greek, but we'll go with Aquila. Okay? My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who for my life risk their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that's in their house. So these two are mentioned three times in the book of Acts, once here in Romans, once in 1 Corinthians, and once in 2 Timothy, and always together as a couple. That's a really important thing to understand. They ministered together as a couple. Here's what we know. They were constant movers. When you study all the places that you find them, they're all over the place because they were going wherever gospel mission was necessary. 
They were in Rome, then they were in Corinth, and they were in Ephesus. Now they're back in Rome at the time of the writing of this letter. And by the time we get to 2 Timothy, they're back in Ephesus again. And in every single place, it says they opened up their house to a church. They were a constant church house everywhere they went. And I can tell you, as somebody who opens up their house for ministry, it's a great joy, but it's hard. But these guys were constantly opening. They, they had the gift of hospitality. There's no question about it. Opened up their house constantly. Third thing we know about them is they were tent makers, just like Paul. So they weren't paid for their ministry, but they would house missionaries as they came through. They housed Paul himself. And according to this verse in Romans 16, they saved his life at one point. They risked their own lives to save Paul's life. Now, we don't know when that happened. It could be the riot that happened in Ephesus in, what is that, Acts chapter 19? That, or that could be it. Um, but they risked their own necks. By the way, have you ever heard that phrase, I risked my neck? You're like, where did that come from? It came from the Bible. That's the literal translation of the Greek. It would not have been known in the ancient world at all. What does that mean? Risk? Now it's fallen into our lexicon in English, but it literally comes from Romans 16. They risked their neck. Fourth thing we know, that as a couple, they were responsible for coming alongside this brilliant young scholar named Apollos, while they were in Corinth, this was a guy that was a gifted teacher and speaker, but needed to, be, to grow in his deeper understanding of theology. And as a couple, they ministered to Apollos and helped him to understand those things. So in summary, everywhere they went, they went for gospel mission. Everything they did was in view of serving Christ in his church. This is a power couple. And they did it together, male and female, serving in the gospel mission. All right, let's keep going. We're going to do this quick. Verse 5. Those guys deserve some time. I mean, when we talk about meeting people in heaven and talking to them about their experiences, Priscilla and Aquila, man, they've got to be top 20. Have you ever made that list, by the way? It's really fun. It's really fun. I mean, amazing servants of the Lord. Okay, verse 5. Greet Epinatos. Uh-oh. Did I do that? Oh, it's back. Okay, greet Epinatos who's called my beloved, who was the first convert to Christ from Asia. Okay, so this man, his name comes from the Greek word for praise, and he's the first man to be saved from Asia. Now, this is not Asia as we think of Asia today, okay? Uh, this is not the Far East. This is the Roman province of Asia, which was the far western side of Asia Minor, which included as the center point Ephesus. So it's likely that this man was saved under the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus and then traveled to Rome with them, whether it was for business or ministry or both, but they seem to be almost, uh, you know, the three of them together. Verse 6, here's a Mary, Greek Mary or Mariam in Hebrew. There's six Marys in the New Testament. Who has worked hard for you, Paul says. Okay, very common Jewish name. So again, we, we see a Jewish person here, not a Gentile. Drop down to verse 8. Greet Ampliatos, my beloved in the Lord. By the way, this is definitely a slave name. Again, one of the great things about computer searches is, is in this time period, noble families tended to carry on certain names, and so did slave families. So we can identify these names. This was a slave name. And in fact, his name is found, this is amazing stuff, on a particular tomb in one of Rome's uh, oldest cemeteries, Christian cemeteries, and most scholars believe that that tomb corresponds with this very man that's mentioned here in Romans 16. 
Amazing. Verse 9, greet Orbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. His name means, we get the word urban from it, of the city. Okay, he is a, a fellow worker in Christ, again, likely a slave. Verse 10, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ, typical Jewish name in the first century. Um, greet those who are the household of Aristobulus. Now, this is interesting. Notice Paul isn't greeting Aristobulus himself, but some in his household. Now, Aristobulus is a very famous name in Jewish history. Uh, I'm going to get geeky here. Intertestamental period, my favorite historical period. During the reign of the Hasmonean kings, remember Judah Maccabee, the, Jew, the Maccabean revolt, and then his brothers Simon and Jonathan, and then John, and then Aristobulus. So this is, this is potentially a royal household. So I want you to think about this. The gospel got, into, got that close to royal households in Rome. Amazing stuff. A lot of scholars believe the Aristobulus mentioned here is the brother of Herod Agrippa I, the king of the Jews, whose death is described in Acts chapter 12. So not that Aristobulus is a Christian, but, but members of his household came to know Christ. Amazing stuff. Verse 11, greet Herodion, my kinsman, again a Jew, probably a slave, probably a slave in the household of a Herod who then took that name for himself. So a Jew, a kinsman of Paul. Greet those of the household of Narcissus. Guy is so full of himself, right? I've been, asked Tanya, I've been waiting to say that for a week. But no, that's where we get a narcissist from, is, is from this name. The how, again, Paul's acknowledging not Narcissus himself, but some in his family. By the way, there's a very famous Narcissus who served uh, as a freed slave in the household of the Emperor Claudius, became very rich and very powerful, and died right around this time. But he was literally the right-hand man to the Emperor Claudius. And if it's the same guy, again, the gospel got all the way up into the very household of the Roman emperor. Amazing stuff. Verse 12, greet Trufina and Trufosa. Go ahead and use those names for your kids. They're great. Um, workers in the Lord. These are two Roman women and likely twins because they've got the same root name and the name means delicate. Delicate or soft. So these would have been twin girls, Roman women. And greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord, another slave name. And this is interesting because there's an ethnicity attached to it. That in the Greek means Persian woman. Persian woman. Verse 13, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So Rufus's mother was very important in the life of Paul. By the way, there's a Rufus in the Gospels in Mark chapter 15. Remember Simon of Cyrene? who took the cross on his shoulder from Jesus on the road to Golgotha. Mark says that his son's names were Rufus and Alexander. It's very possible this is the very same man. So did Simon of Cyrene, when he finally put that cross down, was he so impacted by his, by his collision with Christ, so to speak, that he got saved and then his family got saved? And these are all the connections I cannot wait to figure out when we get to heaven. How did all these things happen? Amazing stuff. So up to that point, Paul's wanted to be really personal with all these people, but beginning in verse 14, he just starts going rapid fire. So most people believe the group he's just talked about, he actually knows those people, but this next group are people he's heard of, but haven't actually interacted with personally. Verse 14, greet Asukritos, 
Phlegon, Hermes, which by the way is the name of a Greek god that makes me laugh, a son of Zeus. Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Verse 15, greet Philologos. You might see the compound word there in Greek. Philos means what? Love. Logos means word. This is a man who loves the word. Isn't that great? And Yulia, who was apparently his wife, and then Nerus and his sister Olympus, all and all of the saints who were with them. Again, these are all real people that lived in Rome and worshiped like we are worshiping this morning, heard the word preached in places like this, in houses in the first century. So, guys, the, here's the point of all this. This is sort of a window to the demographics of the early church, to the social makeup of the church in the first century, and it makes it important for us to study. So a couple things. The names matter. Here's why the names matter. You ready for this? Because your name matters. Your name matters to Jesus, right? Aren't you glad it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life? The names matter. Every name in this list matters to God. Jesus knows them personally. Remember what he said in John 10, the sheep hear my voice. And it says, and the sheep... The, the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Very real people. Second thing, the relationships and partnerships here are amazing. Listen to the words that Paul uses. Brother, sister, servant, saint, patron, fellow worker, kinsman, fellow prisoner, beloved, approved in Christ, and elect. Question for us is, is this, when we think of our Brothers and sisters in the church, is this the type of language that we use? This was what was important to Paul. This is what was important. Third thing, notice how Christ-saturated all of this is. Again, listen to some of the words here. Welcome her in the Lord, my fellow workers in Christ, my beloved in the Lord, my fellow worker in Christ, who is approved in Christ. Greet those in the Lord, those who worked hard in the Lord, chosen in the Lord. That's how Paul saw the people around him. The question is, do we see that? Is that how we define our relationships in the church today? All of it focused on being in Christ, in the Lord. That's the way Paul saw it. Fourth thing, notice how Paul compliments those who've been faithful. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago and some of you guys were a little uneasy with it. We talked about boasting in the Lord. And I said, look, as long as God gets the glory, it's okay to say to one another, hey, good job. Hey, thanks for working so hard right? You did a nice job. I really appreciate. That's okay because Paul does it here. Did you notice this? He does it all over the place. He says, Phoebe's been a great helper. Prisca and Aquila are fellow workers. Greet Mary who's worked hard. Orbanus, our fellow worker. The twins, workers in the Lord. Persis worked hard in the Lord. These folks were acknowledged by the apostle as faithful, hardworking kingdom workers. And man, that's what we need today, right? The church needs this. We need people that will work hard in the Lord, that will put their shoulder to the plow and do the difficult works of ministry. Paul needed it back then. We need it today. Amen? Fifth, notice the socioeconomic and ethnic diversity here. This is really interesting. When we talk about the American church being so segregated, look at the diversity here. Slaves, freed slaves, members of noble families, prominent members of influential Roman families, the imperial household, Jews, Gentiles, former legalists, former pagans, all in one church. Amazing. 
all in one church. So can you picture a worship service in this church? A slave owner sitting next to a slave and praising God together with one voice. A nobleman from a high-ranking family sitting next to a very poor person and praying together. A Jew gets up and gives a Gentile a holy kiss without a problem. A Persian woman has a gospel conversation with a Roman. Amazing. Only the gospel can do that, you guys. This is what the world can't figure out, but we're called to transcend all of these differences. Our diversity is part of our glory as a body. We're one in Christ, but these unique differences that God has built into us and designed are part of our glory. It's part of our witness and our testimony to a world that is literally tearing itself apart over these things, over race and gender and all these intersectional things. And what an opportunity for us as the church to step in and say, in Christ we're one. And we're not colorblind and we're not androgynous. We see the differences, but that's beautiful because this is who God is and this is what heaven's going to look like. And we celebrate it. Man, if we could just figure this out. Last thing, notice the mixture of men and women in this list of gospel workers. There's at least eight women mentioned in this list. There they are on the screen. These are women who are patrons of the gospel mission, vital members of the body, well-known and admired, hard workers for the gospel. Listen, ladies, they are not wilting flowers. They weren't in the first century. Women in the church today shouldn't be today. Not wilting flowers. They weren't just a backdrop for the men. They were crucial partners in ministry alongside their husbands and also with single women and widows doing the hard work of the gospel. And guys, that was, that's always the way it's been in the church. In fact, there, there are no similar writings in Greek and Roman literature that lift up women like this. To be a, a woman in the church in the first century was the best possible place for a woman. And it ought to be the same today. Because as men, as elders, as husbands, we care. We care for our wives. We care for the ladies in the church. The same thing ought to be true today. Friends, the Apostle Paul, this man who's accused of being a misogynist by our liberal friends, the same man who was so clear about headship and authority in the church, he's the same man who's showing us here in this list how vital women were in the gospel mission. Those two things are not mutually exclusive the boundaries that Scripture gives us, and the vital importance of women. May we have ears to hear that in the conservative church in 2019. And may we not budge on the boundaries that are given. May we hold our ground on the things that Scripture tells us to hold. But at the same time, may we lift up the women in our congregation and praise the Lord for them, for their energy, for their intellect, for their care, for their insight, and for their hard work to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.